0: Hey, it's Sarah. Wanted to tell you about a new podcast from ESPN Investigates. Bloodlines examines horse racing's current existential crisis. How did horse racing go from America's most popular sport to a game driven by returns on investment? How have decades of breeding for races changed the horses themselves? And what might 49 dead horses in one year at one track mean for the future of horse racing? Download and subscribe to ESPN Investigates and listen to Bloodlines, a three-part series wherever you find your podcasts.
1: That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said.
0: Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures.
1: Hi, I'm Mike Shore. My dilemma is that I haven't gotten a haircut since before the COVID-19 lockdown. And my hair is the longest it's ever been. So I'm, I kind of think I need to cut it. But I kind of have this feeling of like, I, my hair has never been this long, it probably never will be this long again. And I kind of like it. And so I'm trying to figure out whether I should get a cut or not.
0: All right. So my my gut feeling is, you know, ride it out. You're probably not going to ever let it get this long or even longer again, unless, you know, there's some sort of other massive disruption of society that closes down salons or renders haircuts useless. But um, I don't I don't want to live in a world where that's a possibility. So let's just pretend that's never going to happen. And this is the only time ever that you will let your hair get this long. So with that in mind. Just, you know, see how far you could take this, man. Maybe you look great with uh, shoulder length hair or purple, or maybe, you know, get some Bo Derek in 10 beads. Just get weird with it, dude. Uh, As a writer, people will probably just chalk it up to some sort of cool new creative phase. And then if things get back to normal and your purple shoulder length beaded hair isn't cutting it in your meetings with HBO, you can just uh, cut it and know that your Hirsutal journey has ended um now on the other hand that was my gut instinct my brain is telling me to ask your wife and kids if they're embarrassed to be seen with you not you know for for the normal reasons but because of your hair and if the answer is yes then it's time to get the clippers out and say goodbye the commish has spoken my guest is returning champion Mike Sure, aka Ken Tremendous television producer writer actor, occasional blogger, and podcaster. He produced and co-wrote The Office, co-created Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, created The Good Place, produced Master of None. He also played Moe Schroot in The Office. He's working on a new show with Ed Helms for Peacock called Rutherford Falls, two-time Emmy Award winner, 14-time nominee. He was on the podcast before, and I just love talking to him so much that I had to bring him back. And this time we get into uh, quarantine life for a creator for someone in the Hollywood set. What it was like to tape that Parks and Rec reunion. We get into a fun dive on the acting styles and work process of all the stars of of Parks and Rec, which was fun. Uh, We talk about movies and TV that he wishes he wrote, actors he'd like to work with. Why his one big rule for who he hires and works with is no assholes. Uh, We get into how he nearly ruined the office with his terrible idea. Uh, How coronavirus and the race conversations and what's going on in our country might create some sort of cleansing for the industry. Uh, similar to the way we saw things change after Me Too. Also, he leaves us with some wise words to be a little bit more hopeful in somewhat dark times. Uh, He's the absolute best. He's totally brilliant. And I know you're going to love this. That's what she said. I'm super pumped to have Mike Schur back on the podcast. Uh, last time I kept him far beyond the time that I had promised uh, and allotted for the podcast because I just had so much to ask him about. And I will endeavor to not do the same today, but because it is the second time around, uh, we get to skip a lot of the, you know, who, who were you as a kid? And then how did you get here? And then what'd you do? Uh, but if you want to hear that part, it's all very interesting. So go back and find the original podcast from, I want to say, June or July of 2018. Uh Whoa. was only- two years ago, uh, but time is a flat circle, so it feels like a decade or so. Um, My, the simple problems that we had back then. Uh, I want to try to be disciplined in this because I want to get to the creative stuff I'm curious about and the stuff you're working on now, then big picture industry stuff and and how it has reacted to what's going on. And then just life in general. You know, When I have a a brilliant mind, I want to pick their brain for things to make us all feel better or perhaps worse, but at least in this together. Uh, So we'll see if I can stick to that. That. And I want to start with just the obvious, which is, um, how are you? I know from our last visit, you have a now teenaged son. Uh, Almost, so he's he's great. twelve.
1: He's twelve, yeah. with turning thirteen, and uh, he's twelve I and a half.
0: Twelve isn't it? Yeah, it's just a, uh, it's the tweener stage.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's really and he he wore me down. COVID has been really bad for parental rules like you know you try to tell your kids you can only look at screens for a certain number of hours a day and then all of school becomes looking at a screen and they can't hang out with their friends and so if you're telling them they can't look at a screen that means like you can't have any human contact with anyone (laughs) your age and one of the things that has fallen by the wayside is i was a hard no on TikTok because it just seems like yet another just awful time waster thing But he just wore me down. And so like two days ago, I let him download TikTok. And now all he does is at some point, this will happen during this podcast. He will come into my office and go like, look at this thing on TikTok. (laughs) And they're so boring. They're all so boring. Um, So yeah, he's in that tweener zone of like, he's still an innocent in many ways, but also is is like about to just, he's about to never talk to me or my wife again. And so we're trying to sort of like live every moment as well as we can.
0: <laughs> that's funny. My husband is a uh, 40 plus and he also eventually gave it to TikTok during the quarantine. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, thankfully, he doesn't often come in and tell me, look at this great TikTok. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wonder if you know maybe there's a burgeoning dance career for your son that he otherwise never would have discovered and spending all day trying to recreate TikTok dances may be the thing that opens up that door for him.
1: That's good. That's on, that's on the way. Yeah. I mean, he, <laughs> he also has a couple kids in his class who have TikTok accounts and make and do videos. They're all set to private, you know, all that Stuff, but right. but like he's really enjoying seeing his friends do that stuff, and so it's uh, the next phase of this. is clearly, like, let me make videos and post them. <laughs> oh, then, so he's
0: just a voyeur right now. You have right now. He's to, just oh, he's okay. just
1: watching. Yeah, he's yeah. just uh, he's he's floating around and absorbing all of the excellent um, and enriching entertainment that TikTok <laughs> has to offer.
0: My favorite part of TikTok is that people can just post them to other things I'm already on, so I don't have to join. And and now Instagram invented Reels, which is just a TikTok ripoff. So it's something I'm already <laughs> part of. And again, I don't have to be up to date on anything new. I should just stay complacent and old and, and I'm completely tuned st- out and it will come I to still me. Am, I'm
1: still like re- trying to figure out Twitter. So
0: <laughs> you're doing all right on it. You're doing all right on it. Uh, we'll get to that later. Um. So what, I mean, we've been all binging things and I don't know if if you saw this, but I'm sure as the creator of some of the things that people are binging, it's a kind of a nice feeling to either have things be rediscovered or be found for the first time or even like watched just for the comfort of knowing them. Since the last time we talked, I've watched almost all of The Good Place, almost all of Parks and Rec. So all the things of yours that I had not consumed. I'm not uh, up on Brooklyn Nine-Nine yet, but I'm, I'm making my way through the catalog, which is tough because you're, uh, you know, you have a lot of stuff out there. And I don't know if you saw Saw Jennifer Garner reacting to the end of the office. No. Oh, okay. It's just so pure. You need to go to her Instagram. She accidentally recorded her tearful reaction to the office finale in slow mo. <laughs> <laughs> and then she commented on top of the slow mo video about how, embarrassing it was that she was in tears crying about the finale and i would imagine it would make someone who was a part of all of that feel really good about the joy it brought her and her family and the, and the emotional reaction she had to ending it yeah um, but what have you have you heard from people uh either that you know or don't about how you've helped them get through some of this uh, there, terrible months. <laughs>
1: yeah, there has been some of that. And it's been lovely. Like, uh, you know, uh, the idea of being responsible for anything that has brought anyone any joy since <laughs> mid-March is uh, is really lovely. And there have been uh, some friends of mine who kind of hilariously were like, hey, I just watched Parks and Rec, like sort of admitting that they didn't watch it when yeah. <laughs> it was actually airing. Um, And then, yeah, that's been really great and very fulfilling. I think there's a weird thing where the kinds of shows that I started working on, like The Office and Parks and Rec, like those shows have, you know, The Office had 200 episodes and Parks and Rec had 125 and Brooklyn's going to hit 150, I think, this year. Oh, wow. um, And so when you are locked in your house for all intents and purposes and you need to find something to pass the time that kind of show is really useful, right? Because you, it, it's something that can last months and months and months. Like the new world we're in, you know, shows do like 30 episodes, and then they're done. And so you can get through them in three days if you really want to. Um, so that that has been very rewarding It's um, and lovely. I'll say this too about uh, Jennifer Garner. She hosted SNL when I was there a million years ago, and um, everyone just Uh, fell deeply in love with her, not like romantically, but just as a human. And what happens to the host is uh, they come in on Tuesday night is when most of the writing is done. And the host goes around from office to office and meets with all the writers. And they have a chance to say, hey, I'm working on a sketch where whatever you play a cave woman and blah, blah, blah. And um, at some point, like somebody just like she said she um, liked something in someone's office, like a, uh, like literally like a mouse pad and whoever it was, was just like, do you want to take it? And she was like, oh, thanks. And then she went to the next office. And then someone was like, what's that mouse pad? And she was like, oh, this, the person just gave it to me. And they were like, well, take something from my office. And they, just, people just started giving her gifts just because they loved her so much. And so she came to my office very late in her rounds, and had a, like it was like she had gone on a shopping spree. She just had yeah. like she just had just had, been like...
0: fired. She was collecting her things. <laughs> that's right.
1: But it was just people just had this instinct to give her things because she was yeah. such a lovely person, and uh, that's she how I always think so.
0: of her. Uh, anyone who's happened upon her Instagram that wasn't already following her during the pandemic, I mean, she's dressed up in her old marching band uniform and and played. She's talked about her pet chickens and things and. <laughs> baked goods. Um, she's, she's just seems, she seems wonderful. I'm glad to hear that's not a facade. Um, last time you were on, you said that everyone in the universe, thousands of people had told you to watch the Americans, but you simply didn't have the time. So the question is, have you watched it or was that merely an excuse the not having time?
1: Amazingly, I have still <laughs> not watched the Americans. It's, uh, it's now that's really sad that it's been two years of me. Um, I, and it, it's now it's like this thing where I I'm, It's too daunting. And again, I think I said this last time, I understand that it's incredible. Like nobody has to convince me of its quality. I've heard from everyone who's ever watched it that they loved it and it's amazing. I just, for now it's like uh, I have the yips. Like when I try to go to watch it, I just can't quite do it. And it's
0: so built up.
1: I know. And and amazingly, I'm unspoiled. I don't know anything Mm. really about what happens and and I, I don't know how much longer that can go on.
0: What have you been binging, if not the Americans?
1: You know what I watched, which I deeply loved, is The Great on Hulu. I don't know if you've seen mm-hmm. it. It's about mm-hmm. Catherine the Great. It's the same, it's Tony McNamara, who's the same guy who wrote the movie, The Favorite, that, um, that yeah. made a lot of waves. And it's just wonderful. It's so, so, so good. It has this really specific tone that I don't understand. I need to like become a. Molecular scientist and break it down <laughs> to its like elements, so I can understand how he achieves this tone. Um, it's really great. It's super funny and really interesting and really special. And uh, and uh, he, uh, I think, is like a crazy genius. That guy, I'm really into it.
0: Is it one of those where it's historical, but for whatever reason, the tone makes it feel more modern or yes. it's sort of displaced? Those are fascinating.
1: Yeah, they don't talk like they're in 18th century Russia. They talk like you and me, and yeah. Um, and Nicholas Holt is in it, who you might know as the kid from about a boy yeah, <laughs> who yeah, it yeah. out, is an amazing actor. Awesome. Um, and, uh, it's just wonderful. I the highest possible recommendation.
0: Okay. For, I'm going to check that out. I'll add it to my incredibly long list. Yeah. Right. Put it in the queue of
1: 7,000 shows. You haven't seen yet.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, some shows are getting back to taping um, my guest uh, recently, James Rodé Rodriguez from a million little things are up in Vancouver, trying their best to sort of uh, obey COVID guidelines a couple months ago before it was even possible to do that. You got together the Parks and Rec cast for a reunion to benefit Feeding America's COVID-19 response fund, several million dollars raised, right?
1: Yeah, four, four and a wow, half or 4.7 that's fantastic. or something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, What was it like having everyone together again, even if it was just over a sort of Zoom-like capacity?
1: Well, you know, it was wonderful. Every every time that group of people gets together in any capacity, it's really, really fun. Um, There's a, we all sort of, um, there's still like a long, endless text chain uh, Mm -hmm. that everybody is on that is, uh, continues to this day. It's a very tight-knit group and it's, everybody is so busy, you know, Chris Pratt alone is like yeah. trying to try to find a moment where Chris Pratt's available, and the only good thing about you know us being locked down is that something like that suddenly became possible. So that you know, I NBC contacted me about that and said, "What do you think about um, about doing something like this?" Because you know, April hit and suddenly they just had no programming. Like there was nothing being made. It was a very weird moment. And you know, when you're a TV network and you don't have anything to put on your TV network, there's a problem. So they, oh, we're aware over here yeah, at ESPN. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's sports network with no sports. So they um, so they 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 got in touch with me and said, Would you what do you think about this? And I said, Well, the way to do it would be to do it for charity because it just felt like so wrong to do to engage in a commercial enterprise at that moment when you know 20 million people had lost their jobs and and the world was uh, collapsing. So um I said, Look, I don't know. We sort of had a rule at, at Parks and Rec where uh, it was a, everybody had a veto for any kind of group project. So what we would do is we would say, well, all right, well, we'll bring this to the group. And I would sort of survey everybody in the cast. And if everybody said yes, we would do it. And if even one person said no, then it was no questions asked. We just wouldn't do it. Hmm. So I said, look, I'll ask. And so I sent an email to everybody and said, um, you know, w- would you be willing to do this? Um, th- the original pitch was a table read, like getting together and just doing a table read of a, of an already produced episode. And I said, Would you be willing to do this for charity? And within an hour, every single one of them had written back and said yes, which was lovely. And then once everybody was in, I was like, Well, how often is this ever gonna happen that this group of people is agrees to do something? And so I said, like, Well, shoot, if if that's the case then we ought to write something new like it shouldn't be just a, t- a table reads kind of lame like you've already seen the episode probably it can and- be
0: good it can be good but yeah it's better to have new content
1: yeah like if you can i enjoyed the
0: community one it was very fun to watch them go through an episode i'd seen before but instead be watching them you know yeah I, it's
1: them. I. you're right it's not it's not lame it's just that if you can do something better than that if right, you have the opportunity sure. to so i so then I emailed a bunch of the old writers and said would you be willing to help me try to figure out a new thing and within an hour you know six people said yes so awesome. it all happened very quickly and um and it was really fun it was so hard, <laughs> it was so hard. <laughs> i mean I, it's a, it seems awful to complain about how hard it was to make a tv show but it just really was um it was frustrating work because it moved so slowly and because we had to you know, just every everything was like a Zoom and the Wi-Fi is constantly dropping out and it's hard to communicate to people. But, you know, we wrote the script in like two and a half days and we shot the whole thing in like two and a half more days and then edited the, the footage in like a day and a half. And it was just a, a very, very large number of people doing a lot of work for free and essentially for free. And that was great and that it felt very much in keeping with the sort of spirit of the show, you know.
0: Yeah, I love the show so much. I you know what? I never watched it the first time around and I'm really not sure why. And then I started it a couple years ago and got interrupted. I tried to make it a show I had to watch on the treadmill. It was supposed to be like, they say they're supposed to like pair habits. So it was like, okay, if you want to watch this, you have to use the treadmill to watch it. Sure. And then we moved the treadmill and then I didn't have the iPad I was watching it on. And then I just kind of forgot. So I got back into it and now I'm just powering through every night. And it's so funny because there's like, you know, Chris Pratt gif reactions that I've used a thousand times on Twitter. Right. I'm like, oh my God, that's what that's from. Or oh, like, there it is. You yeah. know, I've started saying literally, and I never knew why people were doing like, you know, all these things. Um, So it's kind I like of fun you, sometimes.
1: I like that you basically turn yourself into a lab rat. Yes. Like if, I, if I want, if I want this little bit of sugar water, I have to complete yeah. my training Listen, exercises. Man,
0: there are some, I've tried all sorts of tricks. I hate my physical therapy. It's so, it's just takes forever and it's so boring. So I have to find ways to like connect it to something. But you're, you're an athlete. You
1: must have deeply ingrained <laughs> in somewhere. Athlete. Right. But you must have this, like this sense memory of like, of, of like working out hard every right. day.
0: Here's the problem. If your body's broken, cause I tore my Achilles and my kinetic chain fell apart. Now I have two bulging discs and I'm not allowed to run and jump. If you can't do the things you used to do well, and it hurts when you do them instead of getting the endorphin rush, then it becomes incredibly frustrating and you don't want to do it because it doesn't feel like it used to. So that's what I'm trying to push through is like to try to do all the crap I have to do to get back to where it doesn't feel terrible.
1: But okay. the stuff
0: I have to do is stupid, annoying foam rolling and like move this foot <laughs> up three inches and then back and then three. It's just the worst. See, You um, should you
1: should have taken my approach, which yeah. is never exercise never, in never. your life. And then when you're 44, you're yeah. like, That's all right, I'm just doing the same thing I've always done.
0: <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, you're working sort of in these weird things to put together this incredible um, reunion. Um And and those shows are sort of like going to college, but many of them are even longer, right? The relationships you have, if you're in enough seasons, it's like a college reunion to get back together. Um, So it's so fun and obviously very fun for the people who watch too. Um, Now we've moved on to the phase where shows can actually attempt to work uh, for real, not via Zoom. love in the time of covid is an interesting one where they've been having (laughs) everybody do things in their own home with their own real life partners and and the the director and camera people are out in like the street viewing from a van This seems very confusing to me um so you're doing a new project with ed helms for peacock how is it somewhere in the middle is it an approximation of what it used to be like to film
1: we don't a hundred percent know because we haven't started shooting yet we start shooting a week from today so Um, We've had some rehearsals and we obviously like have had like a lot of production meetings and stuff, but no one really knows what it's actually going to be like when the rubber meets the road. There are a couple other shows have just now started and we're sort of keeping tabs on them and trying to like, how's it going? You know, and it's the answer is really slowly (laughs) and um, we're sort of like, you know, all anyone cares about is safety. Like that's all anybody can think about. It's all anybody talks about. And so. You know, everything, that every choice is being made is being made in the name of people need to feel safe. They need to be safe. Um, So, you know, there's, you know, every single person who steps on the set is going to be tested every single day, which is insane and Mm, and expensive. (laughs) Yeah. um, And then there's, there are COVID monitors who are going to be there who are making sure that people don't accidentally drift too close to each other. Everybody's wearing masks. Everybody's wearing face shields you know, the the number of people actively engaged in the minute by minute shooting is going to be cut way down, like in half. Every single actor has his or her own makeup and hair artist um, so that you don't have people crossing over with, you know, getting close to people. It's just, it's not a, um, you know, TV shows aren't projects that are, uh, that function really well when no one can be in the same place <laughs> at the same time. So yeah. so we had auditions for this other thing that uh, that I'm working on for HBO Max and the, auditions were like you know the actors had to be sitting you know 10 12 feet apart (laughs) and then for you know people like to see what the actors look like when they're standing next to each other so we had this giant piece of plexiglass that they came in and stood next to each other with a giant piece of plexiglass between them i mean it's just bizarre the whole thing is bizarre it's it's unnatural and no one really knows how it's going to go and everyone's a little bit afraid but you know there's also 200 people whose jobs require these shows to be up and running and right. so we're trying to balance this you know people have been out of work since march so you know i it's we're gingerly and and um very carefully trying to get back to the point where we can do stuff that um that keeps people working and that is also safe and it's not easy and so we're kind of we're kind of muddling through it as best we can
0: I have a sort of where I feel a sort of tenuous tie to Ed Helms because of the number of gifts I get sent of him because of the Cornell connection. And right. Yeah. Uh, during, uh, during the writer's strike outside of the Fox lot, which I was working at at the time when I worked at Fox Sports, I was putting together a hosting reel to try to be on camera instead of behind the scenes back in the day. And there's a bunch of actors out um striking for the writer strike including ed and of course i go up and start talking to him about cornell and whatever he had zero interest and i've been told a million times over he doesn't like sports he doesn't care about he likes bluegrass music and like he just he was not mean or anything he was just like "Uh uh-huh yeah okay yeah um what is that what is the focus of this uh this show that you're putting together now
1: um well first of all I would say that story of you and a celebrity is it turned out better for you than your Michael Jordan story for <laughs> the record. Um I don't know
0: you might still have my card. You never know. <laughs> he may get, one day need something.
1: <laughs> uh so this new show is called Rutherford Falls and it's um we started he and I started working on it in 2016 I think or 2017 and we started just sort of talking about like what what we're interested in and what the, what we find kind of fascinating about the world and the human condition. It was very organic and, um, um it, kind of amazingly, it, it centers around a statue and the mm. potential removal of a statue. Um, and the idea is that Ed plays a guy named Nathan Rutherford, who lives in a town called Rutherford falls that is named after his ancestors who settled the town in the 17th century settled the town as if there weren't yes. already a lot of people okay. living there. Right. And, um, and he has this, and there's a statue commemorating his ancestor in the town. And the statue is in the, kind of in the middle of the road because that's the, according to history, the exact spot where the deal was brokered between Lawrence Rutherford and the local Minishanka Native tribe. Uh, Minishanka is a made-up tribe, um, roughly based on the on the tribes of upstate New York, yeah. um, like the Mohawk and Onondaga and and tribes like that. And so the in the the because the statue is in the middle of the road. Uh, every once in a while, a drunk teenager will crash his or her car into <laughs> it. And eventually the mayor of the town is like, we got to move the statue. It's a public health hazard. And he's like, you can't because that's, this is history and history matters. And, and, mm-hmm. um, and so he kind of fights the removal or the moving of this statue. And by digging in his heels, he kind of sets a bunch of events in motion that unfold over the course of the season. So, you know, we is started a comedy. With- yeah, it's a comedy. It's a yeah. half-hour comedy. We started working on it um, and built it around the statue idea. And uh, and then suddenly over the last four years, like statues commemorating old white dudes have uh, taken center <laughs> stage in the culture. Yeah. And so we've been kind of tracking it over many years now of like, is this good for us? Is it bad for us? We can't tell. And ultimately we just sort of said like, look, we have our story. We're going to tell our story and hopefully people will enjoy it.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds interesting, and that sort of through line of, or I guess not through line, but a parallel line of what's going on in real life could be a fascinating way to sort of satirically touch on things. Which I know you did a ton in Parks and Rec, and it's fun to watch that retroactively and try to think about. In fact, the other day I looked up an episode to see like what year was this, and was this what was going on at the same time that they were <laughs> doing some kind of vibes. Um, so yeah, I'm sure you'll have some fun with the the play of it, you know.
1: I hope so i mean yeah it's it's tricky with comedy right because comedy is a very good delivery mechanism for social commentary Mm -hmm. um because it is a way to talk about these complicated and kind of touchy ideas without feeling like you're lecturing people or um or talking down to them or or moralistically standing on a high horse and and uh, telling them how to behave but it also is you know they can be kind of um you if you tilt too far in that direction then People stop finding the show funny, and so yeah, we yeah. always approach everything from like. And this was like this on the Good Place too. It was always like, well, if it's not funny, nothing, nothing works. If it's not right. funny, you're, you're, whatever you're trying to say about the world gets lost because people get bored, and so it always has to start with comedy. And fortunately, Ed is a very funny person, and so we're not, uh, we're not super worried about that. But um, it just is. It's a delicate balance. But I think if you can pull it off, it's better. It's a better delivery mechanism than drama because drama um is makes people feel like sad a lot and makes people feel like you know you end up like feeling pessimistic about the world instead of optimistic like i love breaking bad but um i mean i loved it so much it's one of my favorite shows in history but it didn't really make you feel great about the human condition <laughs> right you know, right,
0: like- right 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 and there's that there's a sort of discovering or surprise element of realizing that there's a truth underlying the comedy you're watching that makes it more interesting to happen upon than it does when it's flat out the intention of the of the plot or whatever
1: yeah um, yeah.
0: yeah i'm think- i'm curious because you're you're just talking about um if if it's if it doesn't work, then it doesn't matter you know what point you're getting across the comedy has to lead. I'm sort of fascinated by watching something that I think should be good and then it's not. And I wonder, <laughs> like, you know, I was just watching it and I and I, you know, I don't want to criticize because I love both of them, but Issa Rae and Kumail Nanjani did a movie that's up on Netflix that I was watching. And it, I was sort of watching it thinking to myself, this writing is funny, but I wasn't laughing at it, right? Sure. And then I saw and felt the moments of the plot that were supposed to be absurd or over the top. And I felt this way about, um, wine country too, which I actually love the first half of the movie enough that I've watched it twice, even though the second half of the movie kind of bothers me, uh, with Tina Fey and Maya Rudolph and all them. And they go to Napa and the first half is brilliant. And then the second half they do the thing where like everybody has to fall down a hill and get bit by a snake. And like, you know, it's, yeah, you know. um, but I was watching both of those movies recently and thinking to myself, I get why they did that. And it's funny and it makes sense. But instead of laughing, I'm thinking about how they made the movie and how this feels like that time in the movie where things are supposed to go off the rails, or this is a funny physical plot, you know, a comedy plot. Um, Whose job is it to make the script that's good into something that works? Is it, is it everything? It could be that the actors suck. It could be the tone isn't right. It could be the director shot it funny.
1: Yeah. Look, the truth is, is that, um, making anything, uh, a movie, a TV show, uh, uh, an album, anything is really hard and it's really hard to have it stick together holistically from beginning to end. And the job of doing that is kind of everybody's job. Like the, the, I think the thing that the, that a lot of people don't really realize about, um, about movie making or, or, or you know, anything for the screen is that along the way from conception to completion, there are hundreds of different people who have to do their job incredibly well for it to turn out well. And to that end, I, I can tell you, like, you could take the greatest movie of all time um, or the funniest comedy of all time, what it, whatever that is for you. And if I gave it to an editor, uh, in two hours, that editor could screw it up so badly that you would hate it, Like yeah. you, he, but, but with tiny changes, just like cutting at different times or eliminating one little moment or scene or choosing a slightly different take of an actor delivering a certain line that you love. I could a, a good editor can absolutely ruin if he or she chooses to any piece of entertainment that's ever been made. And and conversely, a good editor can take the biggest bunch of crap you've ever shot yeah. and spin it into something that actually people love, like, and that's just editing. And that has, says nothing about sound design and sound mixing and and directing and acting and writing and, and set design and production design and everything. There are so many people who have to do their job so well in order for something to be good uh, all the way through. And so, you know, when you have like, it, it's not always the case that you hear a thing you hear a lot from directors when you meet them, for example, is you'll say like, oh, I really liked your movie. And they just immediately are like, thanks, (sighs) thanks. (laughs) And the reason that they're sad is because the movie that you saw isn't the movie they made. They made a different movie or they had a different movie in their head and a number of different things conspired to make it so that the movie that they had to release wasn't the movie they wanted to make. Mm -hmm. So if even though you like it, And you could be genuine and like, I really like that movie. They know that the movie could have been better or it could have been different or it should have been different or whatever. And that is, you know, that's that's, you know, time and money. You know, they run out of time. They can't shoot a scene they want to do. They had an idea for a stunt they couldn't do the uh, the executives in charge of it gave them notes that they had to follow because they are signing their paychecks. Like there are just so many millions of little tiny things that have to go right. And that's why when something is actually good all the way through it feels like a miracle it feels yeah. like oh my god how did this ever how did this ever happen and very frequently this story is no one was paying attention right <laughs> it's like a young director or a young writer or both who are, are somehow finagle a couple million bucks to go off and make something and no one cares because it's not a high risk venture for a studio and so they cast exactly who they want and they make it exactly the way they want even though it might be inexpensive and they edit it exactly the way they want and the people are like i don't know fine let's just release this cuz who cares and then suddenly you have rushmore or oh, whatever yeah, it's you, the
0: goodwill hunting story yeah <laughs> it, yeah so
1: so it 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 just is the case that like incredibly talented people um can work on something that from a script that's incredibly well written and they can have an incredibly good director and still the final product doesn't quite mm. end up the way that they wanted It'd be it so to it's so
0: frustrating to say yes to a movie and a script and an idea and then make it and spend all those months. And then somewhere between that and when it comes out, you sit down to watch and you go, oh, no, this sucks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it happens a lot like it.
1: Look, it happens in TV all the time. You have a script. There's a there's a weird thing that happens in TV, which is, you know, you do a read through of every episode, at least in comedy. And you have if you have a great read through, if the episode is a great read through and everybody laughs all the way through you, then alarm bell goes off because a couple things happen. It's really hard to make TV. It's really exhausting. And if you have a really great read through, your temptation is, okay, thank God, we don't have to care about this anymore, let's just shoot this. Mm. If you have a terrible read through, it becomes an all hands on deck situation where everybody gathers around and works really, really hard trying to make it better. And so very frequently, if you have an amazing read through, the episode turns out fine, it's fine, like it's good. And if you have a terrible read through, and you do a massive amount of work to try to make it better. You end up with something that's incredible, and yeah. it's just this weird quirk of the system that, like, because you're making, you know, on those shows we were talking about, you're making 22, 24, sometimes twenty eight episodes in a single season. So if you have a really good read through, you're so relieved you just are like, let's never think about this again. <laughs> yeah. And if you have a terrible one, it's like everyone buckles down. So yeah. it there's it's just not it's not science. It's not math. It's it's something ineffable and and hard to track.
0: Well, and it's like everything, right? It's like, I remember hearing Ray LaMontagne do a live... Uh, show talking about uh, the version of I think it was um, you are the best thing that he really wanted to do, and he was going to play it the way he wanted it instead of the way the studios had had him put it on the record. And then he played it, and I was like, "Oh, the studio was right." <laughs> now, of course, you get used to one thing, and the first time you hear it, but uh, you know, it, it sort of reminds me of us all being uh, LeBron James staring at J.R. Smith, like, <laughs> like you know, like you're just all in the middle of something. You're like, "No, you ruined it." Um, yeah, which is yeah. you know something that we all to do. I remember I was writing a story once and the editor changed ain't nobody got time for that to nobody has any time for that because she didn't know the reference. And I was like, no, I can't work with this editor anymore. Like this isn't going to work for me. She's, she's not, she's not a, a good fit. This week marks the 6th annual KPMG Women's PGA Championship at Aronament Golf Club in Newton Square, Pennsylvania. As the first ever partnership between the LPGA Tour, the PGA of America, and KPMG, the KPMG Women's PGA Championship brings together the best LPGA players from around the world to compete for one of the most coveted major championships in golf. Competing on championship-caliber courses, the KPMG Women's PGA Championship has elevated the women's game to new heights and puts the LPGA players in the national spotlight. And the KPMG Women's Leadership Summit, held the week of the championship, invests in rising women's leaders, aspiring to reach the C-suite by providing thoughtful content, tools, and networking opportunities. Together, they serve as catalysts to empower women both on and off the golf course. KPMG, continuing its commitment to the next generation of women leaders and proud sponsor of the KPMG Women's PGA Championship. To learn more, visit kpmg.com slash women's leadership. kpmg.com slash women's leadership. I wonder, like, you know, we talked last time about how it's hard for you to decide what to watch because there's so many options. And so you wait till you get a million recs and usually other writers are able to recommend the best things. Are there things that you've watched and and you say, oh my gosh, I wish I wrote that? or that makes me want to be better at what I do.
1: Yeah, those are the best things. Um, they're also the most infuriating. Yeah, <laughs> because nothing makes a writer jealous and miserable more than seeing something good. <laughs> it's like You kind of hope that they're all bad because yeah, you're just like me oh, watching have...
0: me do anything. I'm like, God, <laughs> God, I suck.
1: Honestly, the great was like that for me. Like uh, mm, I was okay. like, I, I, I wish my wife, who is also a writer, has this really funny um, paranoia where she'll see a billboard for a movie that looks kind of cheesy or something and she'll have this completely irrational fear that somehow she wrote it which is like I'm, and I'm always like how could you and she's like I don't know I just worry that I wrote that somehow that that was my thing and and I have the opposite which is like I I see something great and I wish I had written it like mm-hmm. I like I I have a je- a really irrational jealousy that someone else got to that idea before I did. I had that a million years ago with the movie Memento.
0: Oh, um, yeah.
1: I was, I was like, why didn't anyone do this before? I also had it with, um, what's it called? Not Live, Die, Repeat, the Tom Cruise movie. Uh, it should have been called Live, Die, Repeat. Uh, Edge of Tomorrow is what oh, it was called.
0: I never saw that one.
1: Yeah. Edge of Tomorrow is, is great. And it's it's just Groundhog Day, but an action movie. It yeah. just keeps living the same thing over and over again. And I was like, what Groundhog Day, but an action movie has just been sitting out there for yeah, like 20 for years. Doesn't Why did no one yeah. ever think of this? And then
0: they just did another Groundhog Day, Palm Springs,
1: which is also great. Yeah, and and the twist and the twist on that uh, is it's Groundhog Day. But essentially, without naming Groundhog Day, the characters in the movie are familiar with Groundhog yeah. Day. because like yeah, when yeah. when uh, the, it's like there's a conversation where Sandberg is like, It's one of those time loops you know yeah exactly (laughs) yeah
0: yeah, yeah. we've been here before (laughs) it's
1: wonderful when people like that's what all of art in some way Mm -hmm. is right it's like this ongoing conversation where like new ideas are cropping up and they're sort of in dialogue or in conversation with things that have come before them and when something like that that's really smart and funny emerges in a way that's like a mutation of an original idea it's so satisfying. It just is so great and satisfying. That movie's yeah. really funny. I really it liked
0: good. it. I liked it. Um okay, couple uh, couple quick ones. Uh who do you wish that you have worked with? Either co-writing something or an actor that you've been like pining to to get your hands on?
1: Uh wow. Uh, well, writing I Damon Lindelof is like my personal writing hero um from Lost and Watchmen and The Leftovers and he's a friend of mine. He became a friend of mine because I I had like had a crush on him and force him to be my friend. <laughs> um I like went out to, I call, I called my agent and was like set me up on a play date with Damon Lindelof oh, please. That. And we have become friends and but I I am really sort of in awe of him as a storyteller. I feel like in in many ways in terms of like how to actually tell interesting stories on TV like I kind of feel like we're all ch- just chasing Damon around a table <laughs> like he's got he's got a he's got a healthy lead on all of I us, but most he,
0: people think about you in comedy based on the shows well, you put together.
1: That's very kind. But um for store for pure storytelling, I think he's as good as it gets right now. And actors, there's a, there's a million actors um that I wish I hate I, I want to have worked with. um. I've written things for Maya Rudolph um she was on the she had a recurring role on on good place and I and I worked with her there at, at sNL um for a little while but i I I just think she has the um she has two great qualities as a performer number one is everything she says is funny <laughs> like every <laughs> single word she says is funny which I don't know how that's possible but it's true and the other thing is she never says anything the way that you think she's going to say it and that is such a in you know, if the fundamental nature of comedy is surprise, like that's why she's so funny. It's because she's constantly surprising. Yeah. Um, so I feel like someday I'm gonna like beg her to be in a TV show that I create or or a movie or something because I I just think she's so special.
0: I was watching uh Hannibal Burris's pretty recent stand-up. It's on his YouTube special, and he talked about um quitting alcohol and and a variety of things. But I, I did a couple things with Hannibal for the last dance uh, pre-show about Michael Jordan. And then he actually volunteered some time for a charity event that I was uh, hosting. And he's hilarious and completely unpredictable. Like the thing yeah. that he did for the charity Was him wandering around a neighborhood in Arizona talking about how hot it was, where half of the screen was his face and the other half was missing. We had to cut it way down. A lot of it made (laughs) literally no sense. But it had me thinking about just, you know, uh, comedians and how, like you mentioned, surprise is a wonderful part of it. But you're also creating a product that requires tons of money and time and control and people showing up and being ready to go and knowing what they're doing. Um, have you ever worked with anyone that was brilliant and you love the performance, but just getting it out of them maybe wasn't worth it or was worth it, but it, it made you think like, I'd rather work. Cause you, we've, we've talked about you're a straight A student. You follow mm-hmm. the rules. Like you're one of those rare things where you combine this incredible brilliance with ability to actually show up and get the work done and be on time and punctual and yada, yada. Um, I think, you know, Amy Poehler and Mindy Kaling and all those people, the the straight A students, Tina Fey, the ones that are smart and and, and brilliant are are a great combo, but you could probably have to work with a lot of people who aren't like that. How is that for you, especially as someone who does like to follow the rules and.
1: That I have no problem with it at all. Um, There, there are a lot of. Every actor has a different kind of whatever you want to call it process or, or approach to things. Um, I, I used to tell directors on parks and rec, um, you have a meeting with a director called a tone meeting and you kind of go through the script and you say, this is what we're going for and make sure you get this shot or whatever. And then you also just sort of fill them in on the actors and how they like to work. And I used to say, um, you'd expect right which is like amy is amazing she's you know she she's a joy and she's a team captain and blah 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 blah. and then you'd say aubrey plaza is uh will make you feel weird and she'll talk to you about ghosts and and (laughs) weird things um but it's just how her nature and then i i would get to the i would say like nick offerman nick came from theater and so nick offerman Um, I was like, he'll know all of his lines perfectly. He will also know all of the other actors lines perfectly. And if the other actors forget a line, he will sometimes gently and respectfully prompt them and remind them of what their line is. And then I would get to Pratt and I would say (laughs) some version of this, I would say Pratt will roll up to the set about 11 seconds before (laughs) he's supposed to shoot. He won't probably know what scene you're shooting. At that moment, he'll go, what are we doing? He'll look at the script. He will then proceed to do, in the first couple takes, the weirdest things you've ever seen. Like he will do it in a, he'll say every line in a way that you couldn't possibly have guessed that anyone would ever say those words. Don't say anything to him, just remain remain calm because then his crazy process will click in, his machine will like word a life, And he will start delivering take after take after take of like the funniest things you've ever seen. And so I would literally tell directors, like, don't give him notes. Don't don't panic and don't give him any notes. He he his process is he tries he walks down this crazy path over here and then he turns around and he runs down that path over here. And eventually he finds one that's really great and funny. And then the the other thing I'd say the corollary to that is at some point he'll do it. So brilliantly and amazingly that you won't believe how great it was. And your temptation will be to tell him to do it the same way in the next mm-hmm. take. Don't bother. He won't do it that way. <laughs> like he'll try or he'll have the intention to do it that way, but he won't because he can't. That's just not how he works. And so I love that. That's great. Like that, learning those things about the way different actors are and learning that there isn't one way to do this is important. It's really yeah. valuable. And, and, I don't have any problem at all with that. I own the only thing I have a problem with is people, actors, or anyone who make other people feel disrespected, or who treat other people badly, or who make life difficult for other people. Like there is this weird thing. I, you and I may have talked about this, but there's this weird thing in Hollywood where um, some people believe that the only path to kind of good art is through like pain and agony and discomfort and. Mm. Um, and that they, and it requires tolerance of bad behavior and that's not true. And it's not, and the people who have that view aren't worth working with. And so the only kind of rule, the guy who has produced shows with me for a long time, uh, his name is Morgan Sackett and, um, and my manager, David Miner. the three of us have worked together now for since 2007 and we have basically one rule when it comes to hiring anyone from a crew member to an actor, to a director. And uh, the rule is no assholes. That's it. That's, <laughs> that's the only rule. rule. It's a good, a good rule. rule. It's a good rule for life. It's and, yeah. and so anyone who the only thing that's ever gotten anyone kind of um, uh, removed from our world is if they are uh, an asshole. And so yeah. that and that that really is the only thing I can't tolerate.
0: I love that. Uh, That's the way to do it. I sometimes struggle with that in our industry, too, because a lot of the most successful people, there are plenty of really great, nice, kind, successful people. There's also a lot of people who think that in order to be respected and treated like a star, you have to act like an asshole, like you're deserving of a certain thing. And that's not how I operate. But I also sometimes feel like then I'm not given respect for having worked here for 10 years and be someone who's been around for a while because I don't Act like you know. I don't walk around like everybody treat me like I'm hot shit. And yeah. then sometimes I'm like, but I do still want you to respect the fact that <laughs> for a while, I'm like not, not treat me like uh, nothing. Uh, it's it's a, it's a tough one to balance. Um, You know, you talk about. Uh, your, your relationship with the people. And I just loved, I think I sent it to you. I texted you that day when I watched Jamila Jamil, just gush about you on the red carpet as a person. And as someone who gave her the role on the good place and saw who she was as a person and not just an actress Um, making it, which is just the most joyful, pure show on television with Amy and Nick and all the craft people. They both spent time on that show talking about some of the greatest days of their life was you know you selecting them for parks and rec and their relationship with you um that's that's got to be a, a big joy to you beyond just the creation of something great is that these people see you as this like catalyst for their success and their happiness
1: it does. It feels amazing. I mean, who wouldn't want Amy Poehler talking about them in a positive light? It's While like, <laughs> wearing overalls and carrying a <laughs> <Yeah. insult. laughs> I mean, that. it's I'm so happy that that is how they see the show. Cause it's how I see the show. And you know, the, that show, like I said, had this really um, it's funny that show, they, the making it, their current show is literally about making things and mm-hmm. pouring love into, into your work. And, you it's a very natural extension, I think, from Parks and Rec because that's how everybody felt on that show. Like that show had a real sort of community theater vibe of like, let's let's put on a show like let's let's all pitch in and work together. And um, everyone sort of we we were always I think it partly it's because we were always about to get canceled. <laughs> like it was like <laughs> there's a constant threat of us getting canceled. And so what that did is it really made us value every moment that we had. Um, and we just all, it was a real, like everybody pitch in, um, Greg Daniels, who's my mentor who ran the office has this very simple theory, um, which is best idea wins. Mm -hmm. And it's not like he invented that, but he really lives by that. Like he doesn't care whether the best joke is pitched by a staff writer or an executive producer with 50 years of experience. It's just take the best idea. That's It's Mm -hmm. it's a simple way to go about making the best show you can make. And, Parks and Rec sort of embodied that and even took it to sort of another level, which was like actively search, actively um, survey people for the best idea, whatever it is and follow whatever the best idea is to its logical conclusion. And that there was a, when we wrapped on that show, we had this big party and a bunch of people gave speeches. Amy's speech is the, it was so funny and so wonderful. Mm -hmm. Um, and the thing that I said in my speech basically was, um, that, you know, Greg and I created that show, um, it, according to the credits, like it says created by Greg Daniels and Mike Shore. Um, but I was like, we, no, we wrote the pilot. That's a, and there's a difference. Like this show, that show felt like it was created by everybody. Like every, every actor who gave who improvised something funny and every, um, you know, every property, uh, master who, who came up with a funny idea for a prop and every costumer who like figured out how to dress. Jean Ralphio and Mona Lisa Saperstein. the crazy. Indiana Pacer. Yeah, every Roy Herbert <laughs> cameo, like you know, like it really, and that is really how it felt. It felt like the show had been created by this massive group of people, and that that's is the really cool. that's the that's why I think people have such fond memories of it is because it really felt like a team.
0: Gosh, I have so much more to get to. I did not follow my plan, but a couple more <laughs> quick things. I, of course, I failed. I I I, I figured I would. Um, but you were talking about sort of creating this uh, feeling on set and, and and how people treat each other and how important that is. Last time you were on was 2018. So it's sort of like the heat of the Me Too moment. And we mm-hmm. talked about um, you had worked with so many people co- kind of caught up in it on either side. And it was sort of a cleansing, right? The reaction to it was very much the opposite of let's root out all these people who are like this and try to change it. There's sort of a different cleansing of sorts right now in, in, in two different ways. One, Of course, is um, demands from people of color to be to be treated equally and better and to sort of uproot the same sort of ingrained, we're all just used to this so we don't mention it vibe um, that happened with the Me Too movement and women in harassment. I know you haven't been on sets the same way, but in conversations with networks or actors or creators, um, has it felt like there is going to be some sort of cleansing similar to Me Too in terms of the raising of, of people of color and their voices or their perspectives or their treatment within the industry?
1: Yeah. I mean, they're different, right? Because the, they're, the one of them, um, you know, the Me Too movement was about how women um it was two parts one is things that had been denied to women which of which there were many um leadership roles showrunning roles directing gigs all that kind of stuff and then the other half of it was even more virulent and awful which was the active aggressive sexual harassment and assault that had gone on in every phase of the industry um so there were things that that like that that were like Oh, this is this is active, active crimes are being committed and have been committed on sets and in Hollywood rooms for decades and decades. And so those crimes need to stop. That's Mm -hmm. the first thing. And then there needs to be this corrective measure to ensure that women get more opportunities to do various jobs that had just been generally denied to them. The the people of color movement that's happening now. Is less about, I think, active crimes, and more about denial of opportunity in
0: the industry, at least, yeah.
1: In the industry, outside yeah. The yes. industry it outside the industry, outside, outside, yes. it's almost entirely about active right. crimes, um, or at least it's primarily about that. And then also there are things like redlining and neighborhoods and stuff like that that are, right. you know, that are that need to be also addressed. In the industry, it's less about the sort of like active crime and more about just denial. So that and that part of it, I think. You're already seeing that be addressed um, to some extent. There are things that um, th- there, you know, I'm I go back and forth on this um, of whether I should be cynical or or optimistic. The cynic in me says that giant multinational corporations see social progress movements happening and they think to themselves, man, we don't want to get attacked for this. And so we better right. do something to change it. And I think there is some of that happening. There has already been instances of of companies, not necessarily Hollywood uh, companies, but companies in America, who have put out very lovely Black Lives Matter statements. And then someone comes back and says like, oh, really, then why are you giving money to this politician right. or doing this? Is and this new? So, I
0: believe it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. the internet term that we use for right. holding up someone's terrible practices next to their statement. <laughs> right,
1: so there's there's already there's already, there, there's already that, that side of it is cynical, right? And I think there is, of course, gonna be some of that. Corporate America is a fairly cynical place. But I also sense a real and sincere and heartfelt desire to make a correction in terms of who we allow to be directors and actors, what kinds of stories get told. I mean, look, this story, this show, um, that Ed Helms and I are doing, and this woman named Sierra Teller um, it's about, it's about native American issues. And half of our writing staff was native American, That's great. um, different tribes um, from all over the country. But it was, it was like, well, this show is about is 50, 50, uh, about, you know, this relationship between um, the European settlers and indigenous people in this country. So it ought to be 50 50 represented in the writer's room and it ideally ought to be 50 50 represented from directors. Um, and we're we're trying that. And it's you know, we've got we're we're almost there. Um, and I think that that kind of thing would probably have been impossible a little while ago. It probably would have been impossible to make this show and to get that kind of representation on behind the camera in addition to in front of the camera. So I think that that effort is, um, I think there's some cynicism, there's some cynical practices, no question, but I also think and sense, um, a a sincere effort on the part of the people who were really powerful to correct, to course, correct from, from what had been a pretty dismal record of representation in, in all phases of TV production.
0: Well, and I think that in, in rooms, in private, there are probably still conversations of, here, this show needs to be X and Y. Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Okay, but what about the statement? <laughs> ah, yeah, that was, uh, we need to do, we need to say that, but we're not going to actually do it. But there's that fear of going public with those things Um, that is a risk for the people speaking out. And it's the same thing we spoke about with Me Too, where you said people were just so nervous about being the one to bring something up, whether that was the behavior of an actor or a powerful producer. Um, right. But there is, there is, I think, more fear of exposure of what's really going on behind the scenes than ever before, and, yeah. and that your intentions will come out if if you are not uh, well intentioned with this stuff. And I think um, there's good also to hold though, over people.
1: <laughs> yeah, but there's, I think there's also uh, the the non cynical side of me says there is a uh, there's a positive feedback loop here, which is mm-hmm. that if you do a show like Insecure yeah. and you see how good Insecure is. That people are like, well, this feels new and interesting. And we've been making TV for 80 years now. Yeah. And like it's hard to find things that are new and interesting. I mean, Sierra Ornelas, who's co-running the show with me and Ed, uh, is, is Navajo. She's half Navajo. And the thing that she said from the beginning is, you've never been able to see um, Native Americans on TV just hanging out like they're always it's always like they're in a teepee regardless of what tribe they're in you know teepees are plains plains tribes and you would have uh, native characters living in new york in teepees for no reason like no one bothered to check whether (laughs) (laughs) that was accurate right Right. and and they're always performing some kind of spooky spell and chanting something and summoning the spirit of a wolf or whatever and she's like look native americans like hang out and they go to chick-fil-a and they eat and they like (laughs) They play softball and they just are normal humans and her right. she's like her goal from the beginning has been like can can we just see some native characters who are just hanging out like everybody else mm-hmm. and i so there is this feedback loop where like when you see those stories and you're like well they, i've never seen this before and then people chase that newness so yeah Which it's just like Positive it's great and it's where it's where the like it, it's it's the um we're in this weird crucible right now where this stuff these gears are just grinding against each other and everything feels like strained and hard and i think that on the other side of it in a few years it's going to feel much more effortless and like we're not going to we're not going to be talking about it it's not going to be remarkable that that things like this are happening you know that's my hope
0: i hope so the other sort of cleansing right now is is corona related which is that sometimes restrictions actually make creativity thrive. Um, There are so many different practices that I'm sure you did, and we've all done in in various uh, levels of education, where the restriction of possibility or materials or time or anything uh, creates this idea that otherwise wouldn't have come to you if, if all the world was a possibility and you have paralysis of choice. Are there things in the industry that you think are forever changed because of coronavirus? Or even are there are there things that you've seen during the last couple months that you're like, Oh shit, that's a really smart way to react to what's happening right now.
1: I th- I'm sure there are um, things that have changed f- permanently. I don't think we'll know what they are for a couple of years. It's like
0: craft uh, services. Probably everyone yeah. has a box <laughs> instead of a full open table. That's big that's yeah. important stuff. <laughs> I,
1: my, my fear is that look, obstacles are good for comedy, but if the obstacles are too high, you can't get over them. And, I'm worried that there are certain things about this era, this year of TV production, for example, that are going to change things permanently for the worse. Like, for example, we've all had to work at home like everybody else. And working at home stinks uh, in the world of comedy because the whole point is to like capture energy, like trap energy in a room and have writers feeding off each other and all that sort of stuff. And my fear is that in the future, TV studios are going to go like, hey, you guys don't need to get all together. We don't need to pay for rent and for offices and for phone lines and right. for food. So once don't you work for eight or 10 weeks at home and then you'll come in when when we start production. I, that's my fear because that would be bad. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm sure there are things that have changed um, permanently. I don't know what they are yet. And I'm hoping that whatever they are, they're... It's the good version and not the bad version.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of a story I was just reading about the VMAs that just happened that were all from afar. Uh, I don't tend to watch the actual show because it makes me feel older every year. Um, But I, I was interested in reading how they had done everything from a distance. And it was pointing out all these great things that had happened. But then it also said at the end, you know, one of the losses was that, like, no one randomly made out on stage that was right. No one tripped and fell. No one seemed drunk on the red carpet. No one like all the things that sort of make it feel like this like youthful expression of the craziness of of, of Hollywood and music uh, were gone. And so I would imagine in comedy it would be that same thing. Some of what happens in between the work is actually between yeah. the work
1: of course and that comes from people just hanging out with each other and spending time with each other i mean for better or worse kanye didn't jump on stage in front of taylor swift right like it's like and and uh and and for better or worse like we're not going to get the same spontaneity i think Mm -hmm. and the same kind of experimentation especially when we're going to have to shoot really slowly things are going to move really slowly which means there are fewer takes of every scene which means there are fewer chances for actors to like find whatever it is they're looking for in their performance. And that part of it is bad. Like there's just no question that that's bad. Like the, the process of making good TV is a process that is intentionally wasteful. You waste time, you waste energy, you waste, um, videotape because you're, you're like, you're, it's experimentation it's It's trial and error. Yeah. And so if you don't have the same number of trials and errors, you can't get the same eventual kind of nuggets of, of greatness, you know?
0: Absolutely. Uh what's the biggest plot point that you had a fight over other writers or creators about?
1: On any show ever? Mm-hmm. Oh man. Um God, there's been I mean, there's a million. That's all you do is fight over <laughs> fight over plot Boy. They
0: can't get married. The tension ends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there
1: was a um there was a continu well, actually that that is the answer. The answer is should Jim kiss Pam at the end of season two of The Office. Uh. Like I and that uh, really it was should he say i love you that was the that was the real fight and i was part of a team that felt like by doing that we were ruining the show that greg was insane that the it would be over it would be destroying everything that we'd worked so hard to build and Greg uh dug in his heels and said no this is what we're doing and he was 100% right it's the most famous <laughs> moment in the show's history it changed everything and like and now it's i, I like to remember how wrong i was about that because yeah. it, it if ever i am worried about getting too comfortable with my own abilities i'm like well i tried to ruin the greatest <laughs> moment in tv history so yeah
0: yeah I, I, I that's why my brain shouted that was because i feel like everyone always goes to the moonlighting example like it just wasn't the same that was
1: it a- that was our fear. Our fear. Yeah. The the contingent of which I was a part, and will name no other names because I don't want them <laughs> to be blacklisted in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, the contingent that w- w- wanted him not to say "I love you" was that team. Was yeah. like, what? Then, then what? Like the whole show was based on them in this gossamer spider web of flirtation, kind of like yeah. circling around each other, and we're just wipe. We're just destroying it. Um, and Greg was like, "No, this is what we're doing," and he was right.
0: Um, you have a ton of hits, like a ton of really big shows that people that are super beloved, but you have a couple misses and a couple of them that happened <laughs> since we last talked. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, well, you know, one, I DVR'd and then I hadn't watched the first episode yet. And then there, there were like no more episodes. And I was like, oh, um, uh, uh, so I'm curious, why didn't they work when you look at the stuff, especially in more recent years, when you clearly know what you're doing and you know how to make a show work, why do you think a couple, maybe one or two that you've had didn't take off?
1: Uh, I think there's any number of reasons. Um, The biggest one, honestly, is that I've said this many times before, and I truly believe it. If you had unlimited time and unlimited money, what you would do is you would make about eight or 10 episodes of every show, and then you'd throw them in the garbage because you don't really understand what your show is until about eight or 10 episodes in. And some shows don't get that chance. Some shows don't like some, you know, if you go back and read reviews, from The Office, Parks and Rec, 30 Rock, any show, basically, really, any comedy show, Cheers, Seinfeld, Seinfeld, famously the lowest yeah. testing pilot in the history of NBC, yeah. the, the, the record that it broke was Cheers' pilot. <laughs> so, you know, if you go back and read the reviews from the early going in all those comedy shows, you see the same thing. It's like, this isn't funny. It doesn't work. Characters have no chemistry, blah, blah, blah. And it's just because that's what always happens at the beginning of a comedy show. Um, it takes a while to figure out how people talk and what's funny about them and how, what combinations would it be. It's all just trial and error. And so shows sometimes just don't get the chance to survive that awkward yeah. you know, puberty growing stage uh, and they get they get stopped. And that doesn't mean that every TV show would be great um, if it if it got to keep going. But they'd all be better. Like every show that's been canceled If it had another season, it would be better than it was the first season. So I honestly, I think that's the biggest reason.
0: Is that still super hard for you, despite all the successes you had, or even maybe more hard because you're like, listen, I'm going to get this. You didn't give me time to.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, um, yeah, it's always hard when something ends, especially when you don't choose to end it. Uh it's painful and embarrassing. And um, you know, you you feel bad for all the people who put their faith right. in you uh, as a producer or as a writer. Like it stinks. It's awful. It's um writing is is constant vulnerability. And when you make yourself vulnerable by writing something and putting it out in the world and then people reject it for whatever reason, it feels like they read your diary and decided <laughs> that you were a nerd, you know? <laughs> and so right um so yeah it stinks it's awful um and i in uh, the track record doesn't really have anything to do with it because that's pride and i i don't right i i think pride is is a is a pretty bad um um uh thing to indulge in like a, a everyone you, you every ind- you know this every in whatever industry you're in you have to constantly prove yourself you can't yeah. rest on your laurels you don't get to say this thing i did 10 years ago is good why don't you like this thing i did and because the answer will be well because this thing wasn't as good so yeah. like i don't i don't i pride is like the sin that i try to avoid the most i think um because yeah. i think it's pretty fruitless
0: uh last time you were on we talked about your wife who had a show coming out called single parents which yeah i got into in part because i really i really dig tear and kill him he's just an awesome dude the best um do we have any word yet on that if that i know there was a fight to have that renewed
1: yeah, it sadly was not, is not renewed for uh, season three. It was a real, a it was a real bummer for many reasons. Most of which are um, that she's my wife and I love her and I want her to be happy. <laughs> um, but also because the show was really good. It was really it, funny yeah. and the and the cast was really clicking. Brad Garrett was so funny and Leighton Meester was so funny. Um, and it was um, great. And the kids were really funny. Uh, it really kind of got coveted um, uh, is the answer because bummer. it, it, It was like, you know, it was heading into season three and shows get more expensive as they go along and production seemed impossible. There was a moment where it seemed like covid was actually going to be beneficial to the show because it was like they couldn't make new shows. And then they just basically canceled everything like they just were like, we're not doing anything so. It's a real bummer, and it was a real shock. Um, they had had a bunch of meetings about like, okay, here's what we're doing for season three and here's the plan. and it was a sort of foregone conclusion and then a black swan uh, flew a- flew mm. into into her world and kind of um, knocked her off course. So yeah,
0: that's too that bad. was too bad. I like yeah, that show. Uh, we also talked about how Regis Philbin's your father-in-law, and uh, yes. we have since lost Regis. Um, how how was that for you and your family and how's everybody doing?
1: Everybody's okay. Thank you for asking. Um, you know, it's hard. It's, he was, uh, he lived an enormous life and so he leaves an enormous void. Um, it was, you know, he was 89 or oh, about to turn 89. Um, his birthday was a week ago and so you don't have some of the bad feelings you sometimes have, which is it ended too early or right. this came out of nowhere or whatever. That's small comfort, but it's comfort. Um, And there was this weird thing that happened where, you know, part of, part of his whole existence was that like the family kind of had to share him with everybody. Right. (laughs) Right. He was, he was like America's dad. (laughs) Um, and Ironically, the all the restrictions and travel and everything else and gatherings made it so that the end was sort of weirdly and nicely private. It was, uh, mm-hmm. they didn't have to share them at the end. Yeah. It was really something that they could sort of just go through together. Um, and we all, we had a very, very small service and a small funeral. And that part of it was kind of nice. And I think eventually when this is all over, we're going to have a gigantic party. Uh, yeah. it, I don't know, where do you have a party big enough to um, accommodate all of Regis Philbin's fans, I guess like <laughs> right. Soldier Field or right, something. Right, exactly, <laughs> right. yeah. So we'll we'll have, we'll rent out Soldier Field and we'll invite everybody um, and have a big celebratory party. But, um, you know, it, and you know, as these things go, it gets a little better every day.
0: Yeah, I don't wanna end on a sad note. So I'm gonna give you the Herculean task as a very wise man who speaks eloquently about lots of things, including uh, political issues and, uh, obviously everything from the industry you're in uh, can you give us anything to be hopeful about in the next couple months and as we uh face the impending doom of not knowing which is uh i don't know if you ever read the book house of leaves it was essentially that adulthood is nothing more than just the impending chaos of not knowing and the acceptance of that which yeah. feels more uh powerful i terribly paraphrase that quote i'll find the real one but um It feels like not knowing, especially for control freaks like me, is the toughest part of this is we don't know when it's gone and what happens next. And then there's this hanging over of the election as well. And what does that mean about what happens next? Uh, So do you have anything to be hopeful?
1: (laughs) Oh, sure. Um, I mean, look, I, I in my darker moments, I go into like a crazy spiral of of like fear and sadness and despair. I think everybody does these days. There's a lot to despair about. Um, the thing that I am the most hopeful about is I don't think I've ever seen at any point in our country, more people, especially young people who are more actively engaged in caring one way or the other about what happens. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't just mean politically. That means Black Lives Matter. Um, it means Me Too. It means, um, any number of social justice issues that people are literally taking to the streets to, um, to protest that. Amount of engagement has been absent from the country in a large part of my adulthood and yours too. Like, I don't remember people taking to the streets, uh, literally taking to the streets to protest a lot of things that happened in the early 2000s, the late 90s, any of that stuff. Nobody protested the war in Kosovo uh, in the 90s. Um, or if they did, it wasn't really covered or people didn't really care. And I think for for me, honestly, this started, this kind of recent run of engagement started with the Parkland kids who continue to amaze me and in whom I have an incredible amount of admiration for whom, um, because they came out and said uh, they started complaining reasonably about the fact that their friends were killed. And then the kind of grown up machine kicked in the news machine and the NRA machine, and they started saying, um, you know, uh, shut up and your kids and you don't understand what you're talking about. And they were like, we're not going to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, <laughs> sorry. And they just kept going and they kept going and kept going and they weren't afraid. They weren't intimidated. They weren't scared. They didn't care about the fact that some grown-ups were telling them to know their place. And that that was the first time I had really seen that um, a group of very young people arguing and fighting for something they believed in who were unafraid when grownups told them to shut up. And that has continued uh, yeah. in, in all of these different arenas that, that in the MeToo movement and in the Black Lives Matter movement and all these things, people are no longer just saying, um, okay, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to cause a fuss. I'll go back to what I was doing before this. They're, they're just saying, no, no, we're in this for the long haul. We can't be ignored. We're in this for the long haul. And I think that that has now seeped in. I think the comments made by um, NBA coaches wearing uh, wearing things, you know, coaches for social justice, like right. it has spread so far, so fast, this lack of fear now, this courage to pick a stand, take a stand and stick with it. Um, that is, I mean, if you want to talk about hope, you know, if hope is about um, dreaming of a better future, um, young people finding their voice is about as hopeful as the world can get, I think.
0: Yeah. Very well said. And it's 100% true. It does. And also I think there's a bit of removing the gatekeepers that shouted down those voices or only elevated certain voices in the form of newspaper editors or people who hired, whereas now with social media, you can have a voice without having to be anointed by a powerful, usually powerful middle-aged white guy saying, oh, (laughs) we're going to put your column or your opinion in this magazine or this newspaper. Instead, it's if everybody says that you have a voice worth listening to and people pay attention to it, you don't have to be uh, hired or appointed anywhere, which right. is I think a powerful shift too. Uh, right. I'm glad your dog arrived to say Yep, there uh, he, is. he has to go. You've kept him too long again <laughs> because you have no ability to control your wandering questions and search for insight. Thank you so much for doing this. It was super fun as always. I love picking your brain. I'm sure I'll ask you back again. Uh, I hope that you are too busy to do it because everything's better, but if not, you know, (laughs) (laughs) hang out on zoom again (laughs)
1: sounds good that's what she said
0: it's time once again for south bitch sessions where i rant about something that bothers me and i fix it this week gender reveal stunts i mean what are we doing here people another forest fire from a gender reveal stunt if you live anywhere that's dry and has fires just don't light a match or a cigarette, or a joint, or a birthday candle. Not to mention a freaking smoke-generating pyrotechnic device that you dragged out to a park to tell you whether the grapefruit-sized thing in your stomach has a dick or not. I'll tell you a good way to find out a gender, or more accurately, sex of your baby. Take a look when it comes out or use a freaking sonogram machine, which is an incredible invention of science and can literally see in your body. And then a trained medical technician points to the parts and tells you. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because I'll admit it first. I thought it was a cute thing. You know, you cut open a cake and ah, blue cake, it's a boy, or, you know, you open up a box of balloons, ah, pink balloons. It's a girl. Maybe even get a pro baseball player to take a swing at a ball and it explodes and capture it on camera for all time and we get to tell everyone we did it. All right, we're fine with that. But we really don't need fires, people. And you will be reminded of that when, like the guy in Arizona who started a fire with his target shooting fire-causing gender reveal stunt, had to pay $8 million in damages for ruining 47,000 acres. You will learn. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Gender is a construct. There, I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me, at Sarah Spain, or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, rate, review, five stars, glowing review, and then leave your dilemma in the review, and maybe I'll fix it on a future pod. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.
1: Well, that's what she said.